Ready? Born ready. Your favorite political podcast, Where the Party At. I'm your host, Saba Long. Thank you, as always, for rocking with us. Season two, episode two, I think, or is it three? I think it's two, two of, of, of Where the Party At. All right, y'all, let's jump right in. Um, there's always so much happening. So we're going to try to narrow it down. This could easily be a three hour podcast, but I don't want to do that. And I don't want to do that to you. Um, but why don't we start with the Georgia General Assembly? Uh, this is this week is the first full week of the Georgia General Assembly. Now, they kicked off last week, but there was something, you know, a game that was in California, UGA championship. They won. Um, and so it was a bit of a condensed short uh, week in the legislature last week. So there are 53 freshman state reps and state senators, which is the largest amount of a freshman class we've ever had. Another thing that's interesting, there are a lot of folks from immigrant communities. This is the most diverse state house and state senate we've ever had. Five Nigerian Americans. For the first time, we have a Hispanic caucus and an Asian American caucus. So both of those is the first time there's been enough to represent and actually make up a caucus. Wait, was there one before? And it like no, there died. never was. Neither They're, House or Senate. Correct. And is it separate for House and Senate? It's together. There? It's both. Oh, okay. Yeah, we well, learn something new, everybody. Yeah. Well, I did. <laughs> uh, one of the things that happens every single year to kick off the legislative session is something called called the Eggs and Issues Breakfast. So it's hosted by the Georgia Chamber of Commerce. And at this, the governor gives a speech kind of outlining his legislative priorities and his budget priorities for the year. So one thing that Kemp uh, talked about is housing. Back in November, a state house study committee on housing released a report on the state of housing in Georgia. And there are some interesting highlights from this report that I want to mention because I think it's going to really drive what the state house and state senate does as it relates to housing. So um, nationally, only about 4% of homes on the market were bought by investors. So 4% of homes on the market were bought by investors across the country. But in Georgia, that number was between 20 and 33% in 2021, which is the second highest level of investor activity in the country. And that is a clear indication of why housing prices have been so out of whack and why it's so hard to find what's called starter homes or kind of those entry level um, homes for folks. Um, if trends continue, uh, House ATL, which is a Metro Atlanta housing or City of Atlanta housing organization that might expand to the Metro, they anticipate by 2030 we could see 40% of single-family rental homes in Metro Atlanta being investor-owned. And so when they say investor-owned, they're not talking about like, oh, Keith has two or three houses. They're talking about someone who has 100 
5,000, like significant number of properties. So that's one of the highlights. Another, uh, this is no surprise for folks, um, if you're renting, Metro Atlanta has experienced one of the largest rental increases in the country compared to other major cities. A 38% increase in rent compared to a 10% increase in wages. Right, so you got high rent, you got high utilities, you got high um, groceries, gas has started to come down. But if you just, I mean, people were getting hit with everything was costing more. Another point, a Georgia Tech study found that institutional investors were 18 times more likely to evict tenants compared to a smaller traditional landlord. Again, that's Keith, if you have a house and you're renting it out to someone, you might be more lenient than the big investor, whether it's BlackRock or whoever, right, that has 10,000 properties across the region. They're going to want their money. They're going to want it now. And they don't care about, you know, something that happened in your life. They're like, no, we don't care. <laughs> we want our money. So 18 times more likely to evict tenants. Um, and then a congressional study found that the five largest investor companies, this is the one that's like good grief, they increased rent by 40% each year between 2018 and 2021. Dang. That is not an error on my part. Like I did a literal copy and paste from the report to this document, like 40% each year is freaking crazy. I will say this, though. I think the inflation is going to hit them because, you know, if y'all listen to the pod, I've talked about my rental woes. We're back looking. Everything last year, didn't a lot of places did not get rented out. I like look on Zillow, mm -hmm. and they had to go down. Right. So everything that was like 2100 last year it's has like come down to about eighteen seventeen <laughs> yeah. this year. So I think we might see. Yeah, starting to course correct. Yeah, a little bit. Just a little bit, though. Right. Yeah, that's wild. So one reason why the state is starting to pay attention to the lack of affordable housing. Now, I should say this, which is interesting. Stacey Abrams, when she ran for governor, she actually put together a housing plan. Governor Kemp, when he ran for reelection, did not. Right. So Stacey, for better or worse, I think what's going to end up happening is the governor might be taking parts of what she had proposed. He's definitely taking <laughs> <laughs> and, and making it his, which, I mean, at the end of the day, I guess that means the public wins, right? Um, <laughs> so why is the state starting to pay attention to this? Is because ultimately it's bad for business. So in that same report that I was citing, the president and CEO of Kia Georgia, so Kia Automotive, which they have a huge presence in Georgia, huge plant, or plant, I want to say maybe more than one plant here. So here's, here's what he said in the report. And I quote, the Kia plant currently has a vacancy of about 100 positions and has been unable to find affordable housing for qualified applicants near the job site. As a result, many employees live far from work, which often causes tardiness. So... We don't care about housing affordability that's, because that's we want you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the housing crisis has me late to work, right. y'all. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we don't care about 
it's, it's not about we want to make sure you have a roof over your head and your child is in a good school. It's I don't want you late for work because you cost me money because you're late for work. Hey, I, I'll take it how I can. You know, yeah, that's I, what we're doing. I definitely would take it how I can, but I think that's to Stacy's credit. She definitely said that better housing would, would be better for business. Right. This is crazy. So one way to combat this, um, Governor Kemp wants to relax current zoning laws that make it more expensive and harder to build housing. Uh, As part of this report, they looked at current regulations, which is often a thing Republicans do say, like, let's deregulate an industry to make it more accessible, uh, you know, more business friendly. There are a number of zoning laws, it seems like, that could be relaxed that would make it more affordable developers would not have to meet these at times onerous requirements. I mean, even things like in the city of Atlanta, an example of one um, that is business friendly and it makes sense from a, if you're really trying to tackle housing affordability is lowering the number of required uh, parking spaces. So if you're building an apartment complex or a condo, lowering lowering the required number of parking spaces actually means the developer doesn't have to put as much money in building a parking garage, right? And so maybe instead of a 2,000 uh, car parking garage, they can only do, they can do a $1,000 or a thousand space parking garage, which makes it cheaper and it makes the units cheaper to rent or cheaper to purchase. Now I see the difference in the plan <laughs> because I feel like Stacy's plan would have made it because we do need parking too, but I can see this being very advantageous to business owners still. Like, you know, yeah, and then it's it should be it should be a win win, right? Provided that the regulations aren't impacting safety, right? Or the long term, you know, another one another concern could be that oh, now they're they're putting in cheaper uh, materials, right? But at the end of the day, if we have a real housing crisis. I'm okay with someone having a house that's siding instead of a house that's brick. That, and I'm interested to see where they do some rent control legislation. Yeah, that's not happening. Something like that. Yeah, not happening. Freshman class, right? Come on, freshman. um, I'm not going to say never, but I don't see that happening in 2023 under Republican leadership. Because I think that's, they deem rent control as government telling me, what to do as a business owner and I don't want government telling me what to do. So um, some other legislation that's going to be happening over the next few weeks other than housing, uh, mental health is one. They're, the House and Senate did pa- uh, pass a significant mental health bill last year and I think they will continue down that line which is clearly important if you look at headlines and see what y'all are doing out in these streets. <laughs> like this is y'all are doing too much, doing too much. Um, another thing Kemp is focused on is education. He's proposing a $2,000 raise for teachers. Since he's been in office, he's already increased teacher pay by $5,000. So this will be seven total, which is significant. Um, by the way, just to give you a sense of the challenge for teachers in Lumpkin County, which is a county in Georgia, if you were a teacher's aide, with a bachelor's degree, you only make, and this is with a recent increase, you only make $15 an hour. 
A teacher's aide with a bachelor's <gasps> degree. So you're making less than $24,000 a year. It's not enough. It's not enough to live on. And then y'all heard me talk about, in, I don't know, probably four or five months ago about the number of teachers who have decided to not return to school uh, in part because of the pandemic and like, this is just too much. And so this is a way to retain those teachers and um, encourage new teachers to choose the industry and, and make teaching a career. Some other news, uh, we mentioned Stacy. So remember back when the state implemented controversial voting laws like exact match, uh, which really targeted um, non-white people. So if you were, particularly if you were Asian or Hispanic or African and, you know, your name might have had a hyphen or it might be an NGO and they might have misspelled it to an NGE. That's the whole exact match thing. And so your uh, voter ID uh, card had to match your the name on your driver's license, right, or any other state ID. But oftentimes there were errors. And so... As a result of this and some other laws, when Stacey lost the election in 2018, she created Fair Fight uh, to sue the state and to push back on what she called these voter suppression laws. So that lawsuit was a four-year lawsuit, and it cost the state $6 million to defend their actions. Now, last year, uh, Abrams' team ended up losing the lawsuit, but the judge did mandate that the state had to make some changes. As part of the losing of the as part of losing the lawsuit, the court just ruled that Fair Fight, this is again the organization she created, has to pay the state two hundred and thirty one thousand dollars to cover the cost of transcripts and exhibits that were used in court and throughout the trial. This is on top of separate right. Fair Fight is separate from the campaign, but Stacy's campaign also still owes. $1.2 million to her media production company. That's the company that did all of her ads, you know, TV commercials, things of that sort. Now, I've been on a campaign where the candidate lost and they had to retire campaign debt, and that is not easy to do because it's like, why am I giving you money that's just going down the drain, right? Um, but I think ultimately she'll... I would assume that she will raise the money or figure out some other way. If she can't raise the money, maybe she can figure out some other way to pay her media production company for all the projects that she's working on separate from campaigning, which she said on some, I don't remember who or where it was, but it was some national uh, TV show or something that she is going to run again for something. So she's not, she's not going away. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. Um, the president of the United States was in Atlanta Sunday, January 15th for MLK Day service at Ebenezer Baptist Church. Biden is the first sitting president to deliver. Now, the media called it a sermon. I'm, I'm just going to call it a speech because it, <laughs> it was not a sermon. Um, he gave a shout out to Ambassador Andy Young a few times. Former Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms was in the house. Uh, Mayor Andre Dickens. It was basically like a who's who of Metro Atlanta, City of Atlanta politics. Take a listen to a portion of the president's speech. Progress is never easy, but it's always possible. 
the things do get better on our march toward a more perfect union. But at this inflection point, we know there's a lot of work that has to continue on economic justice, civil rights, voting rights, on protecting our democracy. And I'm remembering that our job is to redeem the soul of America. Economic justice. You heard that, Keith? That's the, that's the first thing he said. Sound like reparations to me. Well, we'll see. <laughs> um, it was it was a you know kind of a short and sweet speech. I think the thing that I always got a kick out of is when he was trying to say like certain things that are said in the black church, but he kind of twisted a word or two. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of that was kind of funny. Okay, maybe that maybe I'm not picking on him. I promise. Um, one quick thing. Well, you know, I'm going to mention this at the end, but one thing I was hoping that he would have talked about, considering he was in Atlanta and an MLK's church, is talking about labor. And he has been a pro-labor president, um, or at least in words, um, but that wasn't mentioned. So one quick labor thing I do want to mention is that uh, we talked about Starbucks unionizing in Metro Atlanta and now the third store in Metro Atlanta has officially unionized as Starbucks in Alpharetta, of all places, has voted to unionize by a very razor thin 11 to 10 margin. Now, I think I mentioned a few episodes ago, Starbucks and the labor union, Starbucks Workers United, still have not been able to properly negotiate. And so it's been I think at least a year or right around a year since the first Starbucks store voted to unionize and they still don't have a contract. One to look out for. I know we're only at the very beginning of 2023, but I do want to mention an election that's coming up in 2024. Um, I always like to, when I see an interesting ad, I always want to play it for you guys. It'll be in the show notes, so you'll actually get to, you know, see and, and other than just hear it. Uh, but this is from a guy who's a Democrat who's running against Josh Hawley from Missouri. Senator Hawley, uh, you might remember, is one of the ones who raised his fist after the January 6th uh, insurrection. Um, and, you know, he's mm, he, he's one of those interesting characters who acts like he's with the people down, you know, down for the cause, but he's really an elite. He went to Ivy League schools, um, but he kind of like my favorite villain, Steve Bannon. Um, they portray themselves as these men of the people. Uh, it's just not quite their reality. But anyway, take a listen to this ad from Lucas Kuntz, who may or may not beat Josh Hawley next year. Lucas Kuntz. I've done a lot of running in my life. Running to stay healthy. Running to fight for my country. Running to defend democracy. Oh, and by the way, that guy you're looking at, that's not me. That's our current U.S. Senator Josh Hawley. This guy. 
Or maybe you'd better recognize him running for his life a few hours later. I swear, this coward's always running from something. And now, this is the guy who's writing a book telling every single one of us how to be a man. Now this is me, Lucas Kuntz, running for Senate. I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth, but I did have the support of my community, which made me who I am today. When things get tough, Missourians deserve a U.S. Senator who will stand up for them, not run away. That's why I'm running to replace Josh Hawley, because we couldn't be more different. When his banker daddy sent Joshua to a fancy prep school miles from his hometown, my family in Jeff City was relying on our neighbors to survive bankruptcy and medical bills. When he graduated from law school, he joined one of the world's most elite corporate law firms. I joined the Marine Corps to pay back the community that took care of me. When he was climbing the ladder to become another corrupt politician, I was serving my country and working to put an end to overseas wars. When giant corporations were stripping Missouri for parts, he attacked workers and shipped our jobs away, while I fought to take power back for American workers and small businesses. And when he voted against relief for vets like me who were exposed to toxic burn pits, I stood up alongside thousands of veterans to hold him accountable. I'm Lucas Kuntz, and I approve this message because Josh Hawley is a fraud and a coward. And by the time I'm done with him, the whole world's gonna know it. So keep on running, Josh. Keep on running. <laughs> Damn. That was a good ad. Um, it was pretty good. Yeah, I'm sure Holly was pissed when he saw that. Uh, the The very beginning, for those who don't watch it, is it shows a guy in a suit running outside, like in a gravel mm -hmm. area, and it's the depiction of Josh Holly because he ran when the uh, when Congress was being attacked in January sixth. It was, it was brilliant, brilliantly done. All right, I want to highlight something. You know, y'all know I'll pick on Republicans just as easily as I'll pick on Democrats, and so I want to highlight something that I haven't really seen a lot of. I haven't seen a lot of folks talking about this. Um, this happened a couple of weeks ago, so it's technically kind of old, but it's still relevant. Um, the governor of Colorado is a guy named Jared Polis, is a Democrat. He did something remarkably similar to Republican governors like Greg Abbott in Texas and Ron DeSantis in Florida. What did he do? Well, he had his state ship migrants to other parts of the country, places like New York City and Chicago, for example. Uh, about 40,000 migrants in total have, have ended up in New York City, <laughs> not just from Colorado, but across the board. 40,000 have made their way from the southern border to New York City. In about a month's time uh, in Denver, more than 4,000 migrants have arrived in Denver after crossing the southern border, and a lot of those folks seem to be coming from Venezuela. So to Polis's credit, one thing that he did that is different from what Abbott and DeSantis um, have done so far is that he is asking the federal government to immediately provide worker permits for 30% of the migrants. And he said the reason why is because there are a number of jobs available in Colorado that people are not, American citizens are not taking for one reason or another. And so if these folks are here, let's put them to work is his uh, point of view, it seems. Another thing he's doing is he's asking the federal government to actually address what's happening at the federal border. 
I do think it's important to see a Democratic governor do that. Um, if thousands of people are coming into your country to seek help, it is clearly a crisis. Uh, and unfortunately, the border crisis has become partisan, um, significantly partisan. But the fact of the matter is, in one city, we have 40,000 people who have shown up, right, from not having anyone or not having a lot to having 40,000. That means that that city has to figure out, okay, where do we house folks? Where do we feed folks? How do we do all of this? There's, I, I want to say um, in Denver, they said it's going to, it's costing the city about $2 million. That's just in a matter of three months or so to figure out how to address the problem. Right. And so um, I hope in 2023 is something that Democrats pay more attention to. Um, and it, again, it doesn't have to be a partisan issue, but we've got to figure something out. So the media has not talked a lot about what Paulus has done um, because I think it's a little bit sexier to talk about what Abbott and DeSantis uh, have done. But Paulus's approach is probably the right approach. Didn't Joe Biden say he was uh, he's going to shipping the southern- out? No, I thought he said if you uh, you know do it the right way in your country, you know apply apply legally, or we sending you back. So yeah, I think. I mean, I think that's happening, too. Um, but still, in that time period, I mean, I don't know how long it takes them to to send people back. But I mean, it's just going to be a revolving door. Right. If I'm, I go, I get sent back and I try again, because if I don't have anything to live for in my country, I'm going to try to find somewhere else to take me. It's just I mean, if you that's think a, about that's a different conversation for a different podcast. I'm just saying, I mean, I, like, I, what work are you going to do in America that you couldn't do at home? No, it's not a matter. Well, there's a number of things. I mean, Venezuela, a cost, the cost of food in Venezuela is through the roof. So if I'm making $10, it's not nowhere near the same. If I'm making $10 a week in Venezuela mm-hmm. and it costs me $3 a week just to eat. Mm-hmm. That's not sustainable. I understand, but I see uh, Brazilians, I see what they're doing, you know, in their country, fighting back. You know, like, yeah. there, there's two options here, and it's like, I understand it, but when it comes to America, when I hear it costs $2 million a day to do that. Not a day, but it's two million, it's been $2 million over the course of a couple of months. I know there's homeless people in Colorado. Like, I've well, seen yes. those exposes <laughs> Most certainly. That. So it's like... Was there not $2 million over the course of a couple of months to house Americans? Yes. So there the, was. You, you yeah, but this is, yeah, but the difference is the Americans who are unhoused are it's almost like they're out of sight, out of mind for some, right? Depending on where they are, they're out of sight, out of mind. Okay. And here's a, a problem that's in my face right here, right now. Mm. Okay, I get it. We just need a rich person to buy a bus, take all the homeless people, and ship them to another place. And then, you know, it starts, you know, like just riding oh, or Or put just, them in front of the governor's mansion. Like, no, no, we have to put them in a bus and send them to like somewhere else. But that's what they're doing. Like, I'm going to send you somewhere else. And when they show up, yeah, like, well, that, ha- from, that happens. Yeah. I mean, Atlanta has received a number of unhoused people from other cities and states. Like, that has most certainly happened. It's one of those things that has become. I mean, I mean, ultimately, people get hurt 
in this entire process, right? The folks who are migrating to Denver, they're migrating there because they're trying to find their people, right? Like, it's not like they're migrating to Denver and they don't know anyone in Denver. They might be trying to reach a particular, they might be trying to reach someone one state over. Um, I mean, it's, it's a, I don't know, that's a real challenge. I get it. It's a challenge. And I also understand the, you know, political and all the economic things that, you know, America has done in those countries to probably cause some of these things yeah. too. But it's also, um, like, what's, They're the, risking their what's lives. the, what's the end game for America? That's my question. That's really what I'm trying to figure out. What's the end game? Cause when I hear New York gets 40,000 people, if you know anything about New York city, now I just saw, and now it makes sense why I just seen the uh, protest that was going on, and even Chicago, because they're like, okay, we're going to take these old dilapidated buildings, fix them up for these forty thousand. When we have people that have been here for years, saying, hey, can y'all fix up these houses? And we'll, mm-hmm. you know, we can move in. Nah, there's nothing we can do. So it's like, mm-hmm. what's the real end game here? Is it just to? Like, are they saying they don't want the people here, but they're bringing the people anyways? You know? Yeah. Because like, I understand what the, what the guy in Colorado saying that, like, hey, we got jobs and we need these jobs filled. So come on and work because we told Coloradans to get these jobs they don't want. Right. He sounds like he's telling more of the truth than anybody else. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think his approach is worth paying attention to compared to Abbott and DeSantis, which has kind of been the political FU to the Biden administration. Yeah, but I think it's capped because I think there are people who want to work in America who if you said, hey, I'll I'll get you a ticket to Denver, like how these people got tickets, and I'll send you to a place to go work in housing. Well, we'll try it. We should try and see. Dang, we're already at party poopers and party starters. Yeah, we're here. We're here. All right. So I know I just talked about Uncle Joe, but he is my party pooper of the week. Not because of his speech, not because of that, (laughs) but because of a very clear unforced error. Uh, Now, remember when we found out about Trump having these classified documents at Mar-a-Lago and he was refusing to turn them over. And then it became like a big thing. The FBI goes to Mar-a-Lago to retrieve documents Democrats are going to uproar about it. I mean, we talked about it on the pod. Well, guess who has classified documents in his possession at his home and then at the university where he had a partnership? Joe Biden. So the tables have turned, and unfortunately for him, this has happened while Republicans now control the House. And what's interesting is Merrick Garland, who heads up the Justice Department, appointed by Biden, has appointed a special counsel to look at it, just like they did for Trump. And so, yeah, this is, you know, Democrats. How they find weak. out? Democrats are weak. Uh, how they found, I mean, you have to disclose what's, so I've been trying to like understand the timeline of this. Yeah. My, from what I've read, they found out about this like a couple of days before the midterm elections, but they were like, oh, Hell no, we are not putting that in the press before the midterm elections. Okay, I get, but I get Trump 
because he's a former president. So it's yeah. like, hey, you don't work here anymore. Turn in your work laptop, right? Right. But if you take your work laptop home while you're still working with the company, yeah, do you nah, really it get in trouble? Like, well, no, I mean, yeah, but it happened. His, it right? happened. No, they're the countries. But they're he's the, in charge of the country right now. No, he, this happened. These were documents from when he was vice president. Still, he's vice president. Like, isn't isn't he? Yeah, nah, you're not supposed to have him. So only the president gets classified. Like, there's stuff that's so classified. No, once the... you are no longer in that role, you have to turn everything back over. Oh, but yeah. How did they find Trump out didn't he turn had everything him? back over. Biden didn't turn everything back over. So how they found out was one of his staffers. My understanding is an attorney of his. Mm -hmm. I don't know why they were looking through his, uh, I guess, his office or something. And they're like, oh, shoot. Oh, man, it's classified oh, yeah. file. <laughs> I got to tell. Yeah. Wow. So it wasn't like a raid like they did Trump. No, it wasn't a raid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was a, oh, we have some documents that we need to turn in before we get in trouble. I mean, yes, the distinction is that the Biden folks did say here. Like we don't, we don't, we, my bad. We mm -hmm. had these documents we shouldn't have had. We didn't realize it. Here you go. So Biden probably really didn't even know. It sounds like. Yeah. It's, apparently some were in his garage. At his house? At his house. Well, what's, what are the people doing in my garage in my house? What are y'all doing? What are y'all doing why, in my garage? Yeah. Why were the documents in his garage? No, why were y'all in my garage looking through documents? Oh, uh, yeah. Dude, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> See, now. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little strange. Because I'm like, strange. what you doing in my garage, brother? I know I'm the president, but... It was his people. But was yeah. it like, were y'all cleaning it out for I me? I don't know. Like, were y'all washing my car? And I don't know. Maybe it was, they saw what happened to Trump, and they were like, let's make sure we don't have documents of our own. Oh. Uh, Maybe that's what it was. <laughs> I don't know. Well, if that's the case, then that's some BS. He knew we had them documents. Like, he knows he... If you have classified documents, I think you... In your garage, you, you might not know. know. I mean, you know, part of the, you know, some folks are like, well, anything can technically be classified by. They let you go, and it's like, oh, I still got all these, yeah, you know, company documents. Yeah, I have. A, I, was, I remember a restaurant internship I did where I thought I wanted to do restaurant management, and mm -hmm. I still have. I think I still have like res, uh, recipes from the restaurant. See, it's classified. So you're right. not supposed to have those recipes. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Um, <laughs> Why her go around singing the party pooper song? Every party needs a pooper. That's why we invited you. Party pooper. Party pooper. Uh, to close out, of course, our party starter on MLK Day weekend and week has to be none other than the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, who was a champion. <laughs> For civil and human rights, I also think, man, I, I don't know. I, sometimes I wonder, like, what would what would Atlanta look like? What would the country look like if he had still been alive today? Equitable. That's what it would look like. Right. Yeah. He didn't believe in trickle-down economics, mm -hmm. um, which I think we should play a snippet of a speech that he gave to Memphis sanitation workers as an example um, of his approach to this conversation about labor and human rights and civil rights. You are demanding that this city 
will respect the dignity of labor. So often we overlook the worth and the significance of those who are not in professional jobs, of those who are not in the so-called big jobs. But let me say to you tonight that whenever you are engaged in work that serves humanity and is for the building of humanity, it has dignity and it has worth. One day our society must come to see this. One day our society will come to respect the sanitation worker if it is to survive for the person who picks up our garbage in the final analysis is as significant as the position for if he doesn't do his job, disease is the last All labor has dignity. And so if you wonder why we talk about things like what's going on with unions, we talk about housing affordability, we talk about these kind of like everyday nut and bolt issues, that is why. Um, I, I hope some Atlanta leaders go back and listen to that. Like, why are we still... I think the first time the Bloomberg's uh, data came out about Atlanta having a, four, a child born in poverty, Atlanta has a 4% chance of making it to the top four, four 10%. Times, four times less likely, because I remember every candidate said it. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Four times less likely. Right. Like, why don't we talk about that? Yeah. I'm just, I'm just saying. Then it's a different podcast, too. <laughs> Man. This is what happens when you record on MLK Day. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, and like, Zeta Founders Day. Shout out. Hey. I like, wait, all of the... Everybody's it's like back to back to... Oh, okay. Yeah, I was yeah. like, man, what's going on? Because, you know, they were like, one's like, you know what? I think it is a good time to do it. Yeah. Oh, you know, Biden shouted out HBCUs and they, the Divine Nine in his speech. Yeah, he uh, actually spoke for the Sigma Founders Day. Look um, at that. I, you know, I watched the broadcast, you know, Five Beta Sigma all day. And he gave a nice... uh speech to the brothers you know what i'm saying so the brothers did some stuff for them so look at that might get back active (laughs) but these brothers know what's up (laughs) all right y'all that is the pod as always thank you for tuning in for listening for sharing for giving us feedback for you know i ran into someone out a couple nights ago and they're like oh saba another pod didn't even know they listen always makes me feel good and it lets us know that we're doing work that is impactful and y'all care about and that's what we want to do all right y'all until next time have a good one make sure you know what's happening in your community in your city in your state in your country by listening to where to party at podcasts take care